you have a copy of God's word, take it out, turn with it to Matthew chapter one. If you do not have a copy of God's word, we want to give you one in the middle section in the back. On the left-hand side, there's a, a row of Bibles. Please go take one. We would love to give you a Bible. Uh, so go grab a copy of God's word. Lynn's got them back there. If you need a Bible, please go get one. That's our gift to you. Matthew chapter one. I wonder if you've ever read all these names in Matthew chapter one. Or if you read Matthew chapter one, and for you it starts actually in verse 18. Have you ever read all the names in the first 17 verses? We're gonna read them all this morning. Um, there's a song by Andrew Peterson. If you've ever listened to his Christmas album, Behold the Lamb of God. If you haven't listened to it, please go listen to that Christmas album. But he has a song called The Begats or Matthew's Begats. And he sings this and it's great. He puts little rhymes in there to help you remember what's going on. Um, you all know him, good old Rehoboam. Um, he's just a creative guy. And it's, it's a helpful way to kind of remember um, kind of remember what happens here. He's got this one line where he talks about um, David had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife, and you go, oh, man, that kind of makes you like bristle a little bit at how pointed that is, but, but that's what he says here, the wife of, of Uriah. Um, so, so let's read God's word. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit to reveal to us who God is. All of these names are, I promise. So let's read and let's see what God's word has to say to us this morning in Matthew chapter one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's the first verse, okay? Book of the genealogy um, literally looks like uh, the genesis of Jesus Christ. And so Matthew has this play on words to bring you all the way back to Genesis 1. And then he brings you to Abraham, and then he brings you to David, and he's, he's telling the story of the Old Testament through these names. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, the exile. After the deportation to Babylon, after the exile, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David, David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation of Babylon to the Christ was 14 generations. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your story that you so faithfully stepped into to fulfill on our behalf. 
Holy Spirit, we know you have inspired this text to be written down and preserved for our good. And we pray this morning that you would illuminate it to us so that as we read, we hear your words and we are met in the text by you and our hearts and lives changed forever. And so in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know the last time you took a road trip, but uh, if you have kids or if you were a kid, I think most of us were, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Doesn't matter how quickly uh, you just got in the car, are we there yet is the question. Doesn't matter if you're in the middle of the highway. I'm tempted at times when they ask, are we there yet, to stop in the middle of the highway and go, yep, here we are, you, we're here. And then I'm at to other times when I'm super annoyed, I wanna go, is the car still moving? No, we're not there yet, we're still driving. Does any of this look familiar? We said we're going to the beach, do you see beach? No. But are we there yet? Now, as you grow up, as we get older, we put childish ways behind us, but actually I think we still ask that question. We just kind of change what we're asking about. We get impatient with our own story, right? A little convicting now, turn it around, and we're much more like our kids than we like to admit, but we begin to ask, are we there yet? Is this the job? Is this the forever spouse I should marry? It is is this the home? Is this the community? Is this the church? Is this the income? Is this it? I can't be there yet. I mean, there's gotta be something better, something more, and we get impatient in our own story, and that question we asked as kids in the car, we now ask about our life. Are we there yet? We get impatient in our own story, and I think sometimes we get impatient with the story of God. I think God's people got impatient with his story as well. In fact, if you go read the Old Testament, I think you could insert, are we there yet? in a lot of places. I think maybe towards the end of 2 Samuel, or middle maybe of 2 Samuel, wherever David's peak kind of is, I think you, you would have some Israelites looking around going, are we there? I mean, Genesis 3, God's promised the snake crusher to come and do away with evil and establish his rule and reign again. Are we there? And what about Abraham, like, he's almost in the land. Are we there yet? What about uh, Joshua leads his people into the land for the first time? Are we there yet? Like, we're here. We're where God said we're going to be. Are we there? And all along the way, God's going, no, the story is still being told. And what Matthew is doing in a uniquely Jewish way, in a way that we'll never fully understand all that Matthew's saying in his gospel unless we ground it in the Old Testament Jewish story in hopes of a Messiah, in hopes of God's kingdom, what Matthew is doing is saying that God's plan for a king is faithfully fulfilled in Jesus. God's plan for a king is faithfully fulfilled in Jesus. And first this morning, we're gonna look at God's perfect and faithful, perfect and patient plan. Perfect and patient plan. Lynn talked a little bit about a genealogy, and when we think genealogy, I think family tree. Trace it up, aunts, uncles, grandparents, and then you keep going on and you try to figure out who was in your family? Where's your family from? Maybe you can go far enough back where you can figure out what country they came from. And that's what I think of when I think of genealogy, a family tree. But genealogies have different purposes, especially ancient genealogies. And Matthew's purpose here is to give us a royal genealogy. A genealogy of the royal line of Israel. From Abraham through David to Jesus. It's a royal genealogy because the Old Testament is really a royal story. Now, even if we don't see the word kingdom written down and that language is not used in every page of scripture, we still see a kingdom even from the very first pages. 
We see God's rule and God's realm even in Genesis 1. And that's exactly what a kingdom is. The kingdom of God is God's rule and God's realm. And we see that in Genesis 1. He doesn't have to say, Eden is God's kingdom. It's right there on the page. It's God is ruling over everything, and it's God's world. In fact, the very problem with sin, the very problem with humanity, is that we didn't want to live in God's kingdom. We didn't want to live under God's rule. They wanted their own way, and in other words, they rebelled against his kingdom. Then eventually we see God save a people and form a people and then place a people and begin to establish his rule over them with his law. And then finally in First and Second Samuel, we see kings appear. They want to be like the nations around them and they say, give us a king. And so at first they give them, they get Saul, King Saul in First Samuel. Now what do we know about Saul? Well, at first we know he was handsome. He was tall, head and shoulders above the rest. I think what we're meant to take is he looked like a king. Well, Saul's out pretty quick. We learn a lot of things about Saul that uh, we don't always want someone who just looks like a king. And then David enters the scene. And then in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise to David that his son, his offspring, will sit on the throne forever and that his son will be like a son to God. Now, if you read on, David seems actually to be like the high point of the story because after David, it only goes downhill from there. And even David's life is not so great. You're not gonna hear me preach like a sermon where the main point is go be like David. By all means, I would not want you to do all the things David did. He impregnates a man's wife, then he has the man killed. He doesn't raise his sons very well at all so that when he dies and is gone, his sons fight over the kingdom and who ought to be king. Still, David seems kind of like the high point. The kings after David only lead God's people into greater sin and greater separation from God. And that's the story of 2 Samuel, the end of 2 Samuel, the beginning of 1 Kings, all the way through 2 Kings, is the kingdom of God falling apart, eventually splitting and eventually leading to the exile where God lets other nations come in because they've so forsaken God. And he turns his back in it for a season on them to show them the natural consequences of if you want life without me, here it is. Here's what it would look like. But this genealogy reminds us of that story that I just walked through. What Matthew was trying to do is with every name, he's trying to help you associate the stories of the Old Testament with those names. He, he's trying to make you think about the story of David, the the story of Ruth, which we're going to walk through in Advent this year, in December. He's trying to make you think about all of these stories of God working in and through his people all the way up until the point where Jesus has come. So here's the question. What are we supposed to learn from this? Like, what am I supposed to learn from this story about kings who fail and then other kings come in and they're worse and then every once in a while there's a decent king? I, I think we're in tempted to interpret, here's what I think we should learn. I think we're tempted to interpret our own stories and the story of history in two major ways on two very opposite ends of the spectrum. First, I think when things are going well, we're tempted to think we have no more need for God. I think there are moments in this story that if you would have read this genealogy to a first century Jew and you would have said certain names, 
they probably would have thought, why couldn't we have stopped there? Are we there yet? They probably would have thought with David, goodness, I know he had some failures, but he was so much better with the rest that came. I mean, my goodness, couldn't we have stopped there? There's these high points of human history, and I think there's high points probably of your own story where we think in those moments we no longer need God. So I think in the genealogy, every good generation that is remembered in this genealogy makes us remember that no matter how good they were, they were not God's ultimate answer. The mountaintop highs of God's story and our own story and of human history don't fix our deepest problems. The greatest characters in this genealogy were not God's ultimate solution. The mountaintop highs of your own story don't negate your need for God. They certainly don't cancel our deepest problems. I think many of us may be on that end of the spectrum. We'd say we're fine, we're good. I think instead of facing a valley and being bad, I think we typically live fairly insulated lives, especially, not, this is not the, every case. We just talked about suffering, cases of suffering in our own community, but as a general rule, I think most of us live fairly good lives, insulated lives, comfortable lives, and what can happen is that we begin to conclude that we don't need God. I don't need the hope God offers because I can have heaven now. In fact, I wanna do everything I can to put off death and not think about death because that means the heaven I'm living now is gonna come to an end one day. So rather than having an eye toward eternity and life beyond death, we have our focus on the here and now and we try to find heaven on earth in this life. But part of what this genealogy teaches us is that no matter how good things seem to be going, no matter how good David seemed to be, like he was the king and there was a large kingdom and then Solomon came and it was even greater and he built a temple. Look how magnificent the temple is and people came from all over the world to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and then Solomon fathered another and Solomon died. So no matter how high you think the pinnacle is, the story wasn't over until they got all the way to Jesus. And I wonder how we need to hear that this morning. The high points of your life are not the end. The high points of your life don't mean you don't need God. The high points of your life are not the sum total of your story. But I think the other end of that spectrum that many of us find ourselves on is the opposite. When things are going bad, we tend to think God has abandoned us and may not even exist at all. Which isn't that ironic. Things go really well, I don't need God. Things go really bad, we conveniently believe in him again just to blame him. Every bad generation in this genealogy reminds us that God had not abandoned his people. No matter how bad things had gotten in the story of Israel, no matter how bad some of these kings were and rulers were, no matter how sinful, no matter when the exile came and people thought it's over, our nation, our people group is over. It was a reminder to read this gene genealogy to say God had not abandoned them. The lowest valleys of this story and the lowest valley of your story are, is not proof that God has abandoned you. And we may find ourselves swaying between these two ends of the spectrum. 
but I heard this week from a pastor, Tim Keller. I, I listened to a podcast he was on and I was reminded about two and a half years ago. Maybe you've read some of Tim Keller's books. I think we have a couple on the shelf back there and was a pastor in New York City for close to 30 years. I think one of the greatest, I think the greatest living Christian mind at the moment in the world, personally. And two and a half years ago, he gets diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. If you know anything about pancreatic cancer, that means a very short window to live. Typically when they discover that, it's already so advanced that there's not much treatment that's available. And so the diagnosis and the outlook was, was grim for him. Now two and a half years later, he's still living. And so he's giving testimony to living with this death sentence. And I heard him say this week that he actually thinks he was uniquely equipped to face this cancer because of his relationship with God. In other words, in what could potentially have been the lowest valley of his life, a time that many of us could be tempted to think, God has abandoned me. He actually took it to mean God is with me in this and the story is not over. The story's not over until it gets to Jesus in this genealogy. And I think this genealogy has high points and has low points. And for many of us, we've got to recognize that the high points don't mean we don't need God and the low points don't mean God's abandoned us. But God's perfect plan is a patient plan. It took many generations, many thousands of years for the fullness of time to come, as the New Testament says, and for God to send forth Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary like Lynn read in the Apostles' Creed, and like we're gonna talk about in the next few weeks. We don't like to move at the pace of God, though. So we tend to bring our story to a close wherever it happens to be now, whether that's a mountaintop or a valley. And I wonder if this genealogy can help us grasp just how big God's story really is. And it can teach us something about the way that God works, that he is faithful and he never forsakes those who seek him, Psalm 9. God is faithful and he will continue to be with you and work for you and in you until your story is done. So don't bring your story to a close before the Lord has. But I, I definitely don't think that's all we see in this genealogy because what we see is not just uh, a story that can make us feel better about our own stories, like the highs and the lows and God's with us and isn't God great. The point of this whole genealogy is that it leads us to Jesus. So we do see a way in which God works, but more than that, we see the whole point of the whole thing, which is that it ends with Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. His genealogy culminates in Jesus, and I think this is the second major point this morning, is Jesus is the king we didn't expect. So by tracing the royal line all the way to Jesus, Matthew is showing us what he already told us in the first verse, that Jesus is the true son of David, the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7 the offspring of David who will sit on the throne forever. Jesus is the king to reign forever, the king to end all other kings. And actually, much like David, Jesus is not the king everyone expected. Remember the story of David being anointed as king in 1 Samuel 16? The prophet Nathan is told to go to Jesse's house in Bethlehem. Ding, ding, ding. We can read backwards and forwards as New Testament Christians, and we go, I know that city. Goes to Bethlehem, and he tells Jesse he needs to see sons, and, and, and he doesn't write 
come right out and say, like, one of them's going to be king. So, so he lines up his sons, seven sons, and he starts with the oldest. And uh, he actually thinks to himself, in 1 Samuel 16, Nathan's like, it's got, it's got to be this guy. It's got to be the old. I mean, he's the oldest, he's the biggest, he's the strongest. And that was the king everyone would have expected, the oldest son. God says, no. Next son. It's got to be this guy. No. And God tells Nathan, you're looking at the outward appearance. Don't look on his appearance or his height. That's how man sees. This is 1 Samuel 16, 7, he says this. But the Lord actually looks at his heart. He looks at his heart. He goes through all seven brothers and, long story short, realizes none of them are the one that God says, this is my king. So he turns to Jesse and says, do you have any other sons? I'm like, I asked to see your sons. You bring out seven. God says no, but God sent me here. One of your sons is going to be king. And Jesse kind of goes, I mean, I, there's like the youngest one. He's out in the field keeping sheep. He's like, we'll go get him. Brings in the youngest brother who's out tending the sheep in the field. And this was God's chosen one. Not the one everyone expected. And in much the same way, we'll see that God's plan brings us Jesus. In some ways, Matthew's setting us up to be shocked because he's not the king everyone expected. He begins by telling us that this book that he's written, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, this, this book about the person of Jesus, he begins by telling us that it's all about God's anointed king. He starts off with that point. The point of this whole genealogy is Jesus Christ is the king of God's kingdom. That's the point of the genealogy. Why does Matthew start off with that? And then go on to tell the story of a man who looks nothing like a king. I mean, we're talking about someone who flees persecution as an infant and a toddler. He's from a less than reputable hometown of Nazareth. He hangs out with some filthy people, with tax collectors and sinners. He offends the religious leaders. He dies a shameful, brutal, and early death in his early 30s. And to be a king, he actually turned around the day before he died and washed all of his followers' feet. Doesn't seem like a very kingly thing to do. Matthew wants us to get it straight from the beginning that this is indeed our king. We are not meant to see all that Jesus does and then conclude that he's earned the throne of God. Matthew would have put this at the end if that's what he wanted. If that's what Matthew wanted, he would have not put this here. He would have instead told the story of Jesus and let us gradually come to a conclusion that this man must be king. But instead, he knew if that's how he did it, we would actually come to the opposite conclusion. There is no way this man could be king. We are rather to see first and foremost that this man named Jesus is the king and then conclude that his life is the appropriate way for God's king to act. We're meant to settle this conviction in chapter one, verse one. This is the king. And then everything else we read go, I can't believe God's king did that. I can't believe God's king acted that way. And as I was reading this, like, Jesus is the king we didn't expect. But the question keeps coming up, like, how do you not recognize a king? Even if he's the one you don't expect, how do you not recognize royalty? And I was immediately brought back to the story I heard, maybe you heard this story um, a little bit ago when the queen died of one of her longtime security guards was being interviewed. And this was before she died, he was being interviewed, but the video made its rounds again. 
and he was on a walk near, near Balmoral, and, uh, which is where she died and where she had spent her summers, I believe, as a girl, and she would retreat there often. And so anyway, so they're near Balmoral. They're on these trails out in nature. Some wonderfully brilliant American tourists <laughs> are kind of walking, and they, and they bump into the queen and her one security guard. And they say, oh, they strike up a conversation. Do you come here often? And the queen says, yeah, I've been coming here since I was a little girl. And they say, oh my gosh, you've been coming here all these years. Surely you've met the queen. And the queen was funny. And she says, no, but he sees her all the time. And so they turn to the security and they, they are in shock. So what do they do? Making us Americans look wonderful. They, uh, they give their phone to the queen and say, take our picture with this guy who's met the queen. And so the queen is taking a picture of her security guard and two American tourists and she knew at some point they'll show the pictures and someone will recognize. So they said, security guy says, well, let me take a picture with you and her as well. And uh, he said, I love to think about what happened when someone told them when they showed the pictures, uh, you did meet the queen. And I, and I think about that story. And it's like, how do you not recognize royalty? It's hard to recognize royalty when royalty is that approachable. Right? It's hard to recognize royalty when royalty has just a common conversation with you and then you walk away and someone goes, do you realize who that was? And you're like, just an average lady having a conversation with me. She was kind. She didn't seem pretentious or prideful. I got the sense that she treated me like a human being just like she was. It's hard to recognize royalty when royalty is that approachable. And I think that's exactly what's unexpected about Jesus is just how approachable he is. Jesus is not the king we expected, but he's the king God wanted. And so uh, he is God's king and he is God's answer to our deepest need. Do you realize that? He's the unexpected king. And for some of us, just a king at all seems unexpected. We often have pretty good ideas of what we think we need. And it's often not a king to rule over us. What is it that you think will fix your deepest problems in life? What's missing from your life that will put it all together? The perfect job, right hours, right pay, right amount of travel, not too much stress, good boss. Maybe it's the right number of kids that you get to be a parent to. Friends or family that give fulfilling relationships. A certain amount of cushion in the bank account. (sighs) Let me take a deep breath, finally. Well, in God's infinite wisdom, we often talk about Psalm 139, that he sees you and he knows you perfectly. In God's infinite wisdom of you and his perfect knowledge of everything about all of us, and he knows everything about our deepest need, he chose to send a king that looks like Jesus. Jesus is God's answer to your deepest need. Are you willing to receive that? Are you willing for someone else to tell you what your deepest need actually is because you might not see yourself as accurately as you think you do? Have you ever told your spouse what they're feeling and they didn't respond super great? Or you go, let me tell you what you really need right now. It's not a great conversation after that. (laughs) 
hey, uh, I've been observing your behavior, and let me tell you what I've learned. When you tell someone else their need, it doesn't always go well. Just like God. When he tells us what our greatest need is, gotta be honest, I'm not sure I always see it that way, God. Whatever need you think I have, I, I think... I think I could do without a king. Even if you want to spiritualize it, I think some maybe religious or spiritual people would like rules from God more than we would like a ruler from God. Like God, my deepest need is I'm just not always sure how to act, so if you just lay it out for me, I'll do it. No. God sees your deepest need and his solution was to send an unexpected king named Jesus born in Nazareth, to die an early death for you and come back to life to secure your eternal life. God saw your deepest need and he sent Jesus, which leads us to our last point, the king's people. In this genealogy, Matthew includes four particularly interesting names, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, who is Bathsheba. All four of these are women, which would have been uncommon to include in a genealogy like this. They all had unique, uh, uniquely bad sexual pasts, and they were all non-Jews. They were all Gentiles. What in the world is Matthew doing by including these names? Why would he include people that, if you're trying to show that someone's a king, Goodness, you might skip quickly past the names that don't paint such a great light on it, right? Why would you include these women's names who weren't king? What's Matthew trying to do? I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to show us that the same kind of people God's king came through are the same people that God's king came to. He's trying to help you and I find ourselves in the story here. Are you broken and battered? Are you sinful and rebellious? Are you suffering? Are you ashamed? You are not outside the bounds of God's plan. In fact, you are right in the middle of it. Just like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. You are not outside the bounds of God's plan. You are not outside of the scope of who God is willing to include in his story. It does not matter how bad your story is. You read these names and you remind yourself, I'm not too far gone. We can see ourselves in these kinds of people because the Bible's not a story of spotless people, but of sinful people. Jesus is the kind of king who's come for the outsider the sexually immoral, the lowly, the forgotten, the taken advantage of, the ordinary, the sinner, the sufferer. And that's exactly why he came and lived such an ordinary life that was unexpected of a king. Because his heart and his desire is to reach the lowly with his kingdom. He didn't come hoping you could improve his kingly resume. But as king, heard a pastor say this this week. What would you do if you had one day to live? You've been asked that question. You've thought a million different things. 
And this pastor said this week, it finally hit me, Jesus knew and he washed feet. That's the kind of king that we worship here at Shalford. The kind of king who had one day to live and chose to wash his followers' feet. But this kind of king, reaching this kind of people, is a bit like trying to meet the king by waiting outside the royal residence only to find out that he was eating a burger down the road. It's like you're going to the high place, the famous place that's walled and gated with soldiers outside not letting you in, thinking I'll never get to meet this king. But then you realize he's actually the kind of king that's not walled up in a place like that. He's the kind of king that's with the people, with the common people, seeing them, restoring their dignity, touching lepers, healing, loving, feeding people because he has compassion on people. That's the kind of king we worship. Now this whole thing is, I've got to say, a bit unexpected. The plan takes far longer than imagined. The king does not look like what we expected. And he meets us in places we definitely didn't expect. And that's precisely the point. This Jesus is the king who came as a servant to save his people. This is God's king sent for you to invite you into his kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, King Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for showing us what you're really like. And I pray that you would give us the courage to believe it. And not just believe it in our heads, but experience it. And the only way to experience you as a good king is to come to you and allow you to be good to us. So Jesus, we come with with all of our sin today and trust that you are a king that forgives. We come with all of our suffering today and trust that you you are a king who comforts and who protects. We come with all of our problems to you this morning, Jesus, and we trust that we're not gonna overwhelm you or put you off. Jesus, we see you for who you are this morning, and I pray that our hearts would be moved to worship. I pray for all of us this morning that struggle to believe that this is who you are, Would you use the Holy Spirit, God, to move in their hearts to believe that this is who you are, God? And I pray for those who are sitting here this morning thinking, but you don't know. But you don't know. You don't know how much I've done. I'm worse than those names you mentioned. I'm, I'm further gone than just what you talked about today. God, I I pray for the people that think they're outside the bounds of how and where you work. Give them a bigger view of your love than they have for their own sin, God. And Jesus, if we're gonna acknowledge you as king, I pray that we would all bow the knee in submission to you and follow you. Give our lives to you. That's the only thing that's proper to do to a king. Jesus, we love you. We are so glad 
that you love us. It is in your name that we're able to pray and talk to the God of the universe. Amen.